We're going to continue on in our series this evening with the, the Messiah's mission. And we're looking at a number of passages in the book of Isaiah. And we looked at one last week from Isaiah 53. And the honest truth is, the way some of those verses read, you would swear that they were from the New Testament, from the Gospels. But they're not. They were written actually 700 or so years before Christ was even born. We're going to look at another passage of Isaiah. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. As we continue our series on the Messiah's mission. So a pastor of a small town sent one of his parishioners to a big city, you know, a large city, like maybe an hour or two away, in order to order a Christmas sign to put directly over their front door. Now the parishioner, unfortunately, on the way there, lost the note on which you would find the motto of the the service that they were going to put on this uh, sign and and the dimensions of the sign. So frantically, this is before cell phones, okay, frantically, they wired the pastor a message, you know, rush copy of motto and dimensions. So the new clerk at the Western Union got the reply and nearly fainted because this is what it read. Unto us a child is born, eight feet long, three feet wide. Wow. Can I ask you, have you ever had a Christmas card that said, unto us a child is born? Unto us a son is given. If you have, raise your hand. If you have. Have you ever sent one? Raise your hand too. Okay? Either sent or received one. That is such a common Christmas verse. And it's actually found in the passage that we're going to read tonight. But I'm just going to cover verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9 and 6 through the, to, for the rest that I'm going to read next week. This is a very powerful passage, very prophetic. It was written even before Isaiah 53. And I'm not going to suggest that all of Isaiah was written in chronological order. Most prophets didn't write that way. But thematically, it's right there, chapter 9. Now, it, he's, he writes it around 734 B.C., There's specific events. I'm going to talk about those for just very briefly. Um, There's a lot that God has laid on my heart to share tonight. And so I'm not going to, I'm going to share things. I'm going to be as brief as I can because I'm wanting to stay on target with regard to the time. So we need to realize that this verse, it's the, the, the verse that's generally used in the Christmas cards says this, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right? You've seen that. What a powerful, prophetic passage about the coming Messiah. Most of us, we take that verse in stride. It's Christmas. It's talking about peace, goodwill toward men, along those themes. But actually, even though it ends with Prince of Peace, understand that peace comes through the destruction of the enemy, all right? Peace many times comes at the destruction of the enemy, and this is no different. Actually, the passage that we're going to read talks about the decimation of the enemy in view of this child who is going to be born king and sitting on David's throne, and he's going to rule 
But we're going to need to understand what does it mean that Jesus conquers the enemy. And I'm going to just let you know, if you can, take notes. I'm going to be feeding you a lot of stuff from the scriptures. And I believe when we wrap this up in the last 15 minutes, it is going to become so very practical for us. Okay? So are you there with me? Isaiah chapter 9. Now I tricked you. I'm not really starting in verse 1. I want you to back it up just a little bit to chapter 8. I'm going to start with verse 19. So here we go. Isaiah 8, verse 19. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. I'm going to just pause right there because understand Israel has been challenged by God. They've been called by people from like Hosea. His, his word was prostitution. There's a spirit of prostitution. It doesn't mean that they had sex with everybody. What he means though is spiritual adultery. What he means is that a people who are going astray, they're supposed to be committed to God, like a husband and wife are committed to each other in a marriage, but they're not. And they continually go astray after other gods. Even the gods, like Molech of Moab, that required you to sacrifice children in the fire, burned them as a sacrifice to God. And so these, the Israelites constantly did this. They're here being accused of the occult. They're here being accused that in order for them to know what lies ahead, they're seeking spirits. They're seeking demons. They want to know from the dead, like in a, a seance, what does the future hold? Because understand, the king of Assyria at this time, around 735, 734, is reigning strong. And he's starting to move then towards this, uh, Israel. Israel and Judah are two separate kingdoms at this point. Isaiah's prophesying to the southern kingdom, but he is warning the northern kingdom. Hey, because you are doing this, because you have gone astray, God will bring darkness and judgment. Now, when the king of Assyria attacked, they attacked the northernmost. That would be Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Those were the three furthest north tribes in Israel. Israel, when they attack, is going to be in like utter darkness. There's going to, they're going to be in bondage because the judgment of God is coming through the Assyrians. Now, in view of that, I'm going to start reading chapter 9. Verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Why? Because the king of Assyria had been attacking. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Meredith quoted this on the stage just earlier tonight 
The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. What a seemingly awkward transition. All of this gloom and doom and there's war and then they're going to, after the war, they're just going to burn everything. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I'm going to talk about that apparently awkward transition next week. I think you'll probably figure it out this week. But I want us to see something here. Matthew, excuse me, let me back up just a bit. As we look at this, there is, we see darkness. The the literal words that are used at the very end of chapter 8 are distress, darkness, and fearful gloom. And then chapter 9, verse 1, gives us this sense of hope, but there's not going to be any more gloom. Now, in the past, you were in distress, but in the future, Galilee will be honored. See, they'll be humbled because of God's judgment. Assyria would, would be attacking them. That would, ha- that would have happened in 734. And just 12 years later, they would so utterly decimate the northern kingdom, they would take them captive, take them to their own lands. Thousands were uprooted from their towns and moved into other towns in the kingdom of Assyria. And they felt by doing this, by taking the Israelites and transplanting them into other cities and taking those people and bringing them into the land of of Israel, you would have a cultural breakdown, a language breakdown, and the, the opportunity for rebellion would be much lower. And this is why they did this. That happened in 722 B.C. This is 12 years earlier in which they attacked. And there is this sense of promise. You were humbled. God judged you. You you were looking elsewhere. You were looking away from God for answers to life. You you were looking to the world and to the top 10 bestseller lists for answers to life that were completely contrary to the word of God, and you followed them instead of my word. To the law and to the testimony, he said. If it's not according to that, it's not worth a hill of beans. Translation from Mike Curtis. And so, God brought judgment. Church, that is so much like the American culture. We have the experts telling us, this is how you raise children. This is how you become a success in business. This is how you do whatever in life. The world has an answer, and so often it's contrary to the word of God. Who do you follow? What voice do you listen to? And Isaiah says, 
to Israel, you are following the wrong voice. Why would you consult the dead on behalf of the living? Does that really make sense? Church, there's nothing in the word of God that I have read that tells me that Satan can see the future. Nothing. He's certainly not omnipresent. He's not, um, he's not omnipotent. And he's not omniscient. So why would we look to him why would we look to the world? Why would we look to the top 10 bestseller lists and all these self-help books and here's how you can become a success instead of the word of God? Now, not everything in those books contradicts the word of God. I'm not suggesting that. But why would we follow the world's wisdom as opposed to God's? And so God brought judgment upon them because they stopped looking to the Lord. The fulfillment of this would be literal. God would literally destroy the Assyrian kingdom. That happened much later. It happened more like 605 BC. So over a hundred years later. Okay, but it was fulfilled. Ma Matthew, however, tells us that there is more to this passage than what meets the eye. There's more to this passage than something that would be fill, fulfilled over 100 years later. It would actually be fulfilled, not literally, but figuratively, spiritually, or symbolically, if you will. And so Matthew quotes this in chapter 4, verses 7, 12 to 17. Just because of time, I'm not going to read it, but I want you to write that down. Matthew, 12, Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Matthew quotes this to affirm Jesus's mission he had just been baptized he had just come from Judea in which he had done miracles at, at the Passover and now Matthew picks it up and Jesus is going to, back to his homeland to Nazareth then apparently to Cana according to John 4 and then to Capernaum which would be Galilee Jesus has now come makes his home in Capernaum and Matthew says that this darkness was not a physical, it was a spiritual darkness that had come upon the people. The light that would be shining would be the light of truth, not of physical, political dominion and the decimating, the literal decimating of the enemy, but it would be happening spiritually. How Jesus preached the kingdom of God. That's what Matthew tells us in verse 17. How did this, how is this fulfilled? Jesus went about preaching the kingdom, healing everybody. So what I'm saying then is in the old covenant, we're going to find this passage was fulfilled. But we want to look past the old covenant to what Matthew does and ask this question. Okay, Matthew, if verse Two was very clearly fulfilled at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. What else from this passage was fulfilled? Obviously, verse 6, because Hallmark tells me so, right? Obviously, verse 6 and 7, but I'm going to suggest this whole passage is. So I want us to look at that. I want us to look at how this passage, not just fulfilled literally, how is it fulfilled in the new covenant? As we move now towards the cross and the resurrection and beyond, how is this passage fulfilled? Okay, you understand where we're going through, go, going with this, right? So under the old covenant, this darkness in which there was going to be light would be the oppression of Assyria bring, being broken. 
the sense of victory, the sense of lightness. Uh, I'm using a, anyway, this idea of enlarged the nation. Do you see that there in verse 3? It says that the nation would be enlarged, and in that way, Israel would no longer be under Assyrian domination, but eventually would be freed, and the land would be restored, at least to some degree. The fact that there would be increased joy, as in Midian's defeat, and I'm going to talk about Midian's defeat in just a moment, but this joy is just like someone would rejoice at a harvest or rejoice when they divide the plunder. Again, this is about Assyria's defeat, and the people would be rejoicing. We actually see the, be the, the beginnings of this, at least, in Isaiah 39. Now, I preached through Isaiah 39 at one point, but that's where Isaiah tells Hezekiah, hang on. Hezekiah was much later here. Hezekiah, don't worry. I realize that there's 180,000 Assyrians parked outside your front doorstep, but I'm going to take care of it. The next morning, when they went out there, 180,000 Assyrians lay on the ground. They weren't napping, people. They were struck dead. Josephus says that a plague had spread amongst them. We don't know exactly. He, he believes it was a plague. Maybe. But they were there, there they were, dead, on the ground. And, it, and, and so the Israelites went outside of Jerusalem and just plundered them plundered them. So they literally divided the plunder. But spiritually, what does this mean? What this then tells us is that there is a darkness as we move into the new covenant. There's a darkness over mankind. We call this sin. We call this oppression. There are three enemies that we're going to learn about tonight. There is Satan, there is sin, and there is self. The old man, the old nature that constantly is pulling at us through the flesh to be like the way we used to be before Christ. So Satan, sin, and self. These things bring domination in our life. It says here that they were walking in darkness, that they were, that they were living in the land of the shadow of death. Kind of like Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's not literal death. It's just something that feels like death. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation? And no, you weren't dead. But it sure felt like that. Man, the oppressiveness, the heaviness, the sorrow, the heartache. Maybe, truth be told, you wished you were dead. It was so hard, so painful. That's the shadow of death. See, it's not literally death, but it's the shadow of death. It's, it's like it. And it's oppressive, and it, it crushes the spirit if we're not careful. This is a picture of those who are lost in their sin, and, this, and sin controls them. And they want so hard to rescue their marriage, but they just don't know how. They pick up Amazon's best-selling book on marriage, and just, hopefully they'll be able to direct me. And the truth is there is only one hope for mankind. And that's this oppression to be broken, to be lifted in us. And so spiritually, the light that shines in the darkness is Jesus and what he spoke. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It will enlarge the nation. Now we're talking, now we're talking about the expansion of the kingdom of God. 
It'll increase your joy. And I want to look at this. Increasing in the new covenant, when the enemy is defeated, it will increase our joy. And he says two things. He says, just like someone at the harvest, and number two, like those dividing the plunder. The harvest, many times throughout the, the New Testament, refers to the harvesting of lost souls. In our day, I believe God wants to harvest lost souls. But to do that, he has to break the oppressive yoke upon the enemy that the enemy has upon us and upon the people who are living in darkness or in the shadow of death. And this harvest then would be the lost being saved. As one who plunders Excuse me, as one who divides the plunder, I want you to think about Matthew 12, verses 28 and 29. He says, you know that the spirit of, you, you know that, um, that de- how, how does he say it? You know that when these demons are fleeing, it is because of the spirit of God and therefore the kingdom of God has come. And that the strong man of the house will be bound. And once he's bound, then his house can be plundered. And that we looked at that just not too long ago, that Satan's house is his kingdom. It's not a literal person, as the word's used later in that chapter. It's talking about his kingdom. And then when, so, so when Satan is bound, his kingdom will be pillaged it will be plundered and what is that plunder it's the lost it's those who are caught up in spiritual darkness being freed brought into the kingdom of god and he rescued us galatians 1 13 says he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom is redemption the forgiveness of sins so you see this sense of harvest is of the lost souls. The sense of dividing the plunder again is of the lost souls being rescued from Satan's dominion as we now move into the new covenant. Remember, in the old covenant, this is to be understood very literally about the oppressiveness of Assyria, their rod, their oppression being broken under the new covenant. This is the light of Christ. The gospel is it's spreading and impacting and infecting and drawing people to Christ who said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Jesus had to die on the cross to draw all men to him. But when that happens, there would be a yoke that would be broken. So again, the three enemies are Satan, sin, and self. They're defeated. This brings about great joy. The, the rod, excuse me, the yoke, the bar, the rod, it says that they're shattered. What a perfect picture of the past oppression that we had outside of the kingdom of God in the dominion of Satan. Satan is defeated. 1 John 3, 8, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I want you to know that at the, by the cross, when you came to Christ by the cross, that is what broke that rod, broke that yoke, broke that oppression in your life. Now, I want to get to this point because sometimes, you know, when we're saved, we we don't feel saved. We we don't feel as if that rod or that yoke that was upon us, that yoke bound, bound two oxen together. And it was driven by who was whoever was behind him. That whoever was behind him, that would be Satan, sin, and self. This yoke that's upon us, it enslaves. It's broken. But we step back and we say, but it doesn't feel broken. It says here in Romans 6, 6, 
concerning sin being defeated. It says, for we know that our old man, that is our old self, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You see, sin has an accomplice. Sin enslaves, but its accomplice is you. It was you. It was self. Sin worked in our members, Romans, 6, Romans says, and it says that that sin captivated our heart, and we complied with it, and we stumbled into sin and into bondage, but Jesus said that he came to break it, for we know that our old man was crucified with him. Body of sin done away with, no longer slaves to sin. The old man was an enemy of God, and he was defeated. It also says that every warrior's boot and garment rolled in blood will be burned. Let me just, as we move into the new covenant, that was fulfilled literally, but as we move into the new covenant, what would that be? It would be that every vestige, listen to this, every vestige of our old life, apart from Christ, as his enemy, the old man, will be destroyed. It says right there that it's, it says every warrior's boot, every garment rolled in blood, it will be destroyed. I mean, right now you're probably thinking, okay, this, these are nice, like, really religious, cool little illustrations. Uh, so what does it have to do with me? How does this speak to our hearts? Can I ask you, as we go through this, is God good to his promise? Has God been good to you in his promise? Many times we can say, okay, there was a little bit of a change when I became a Christian, but I just don't feel that different. I don't feel as if that bondage has been, I don't feel like the chains of sin have been broken. Maybe some days I do, but most I don't. Have I... Have I really, truly been changed by the truth? Do you remember we looked at Isaiah 53? I'm going to transition right now because I want you to keep your thumb right there in, in Isaiah 9. But I want you to start turning to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. So that's 15 or so minutes, 20 minutes. I want us to look at that passage there in Hebrews 10. It has so much profound truth to offer us. Isaiah 53, while you're turning there. Isaiah 53, we learned that Jesus was actually a sacrifice. He was an atonement. In other words, the sins, my sins, that I deserved punishment for, the Father took those sins and he placed them upon his son Jesus. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one is turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, who's him? Jesus, the iniquity or the sin of us all. And so as we looked at Isaiah 53, we saw this, saw this profound statement that Jesus, as Redeemer, as the one sent to rescue us, he actually became a sacrifice for our sins. Let me just say that all of us at times can feel defeated in our Christian life. Some of us, though, we're caught up in strongholds, and it's like we can't keep our head above the water, and we can feel like we're drowning. How do we make this life work? 
I've known of Christians who have committed suicide. And can I just suggest to you, apart from just the emotion of it all, I believe that it's because this profound truth that we're going to look at in just a moment in Hebrews 10, was it, it just it didn't quite click all the way. I'm entitling this message, and I usually tell you what I'm entitling at the very beginning. I didn't do that. I'm entitling it, Every Stronghold Broken. Every Stronghold Broken. Or, to be a little bit more theological, the efficacy of the cross, which is a really neat way of saying that the power of the cross is sufficient. When you get what happened at the cross and by the cross, I believe so much can be changed in your life. I want to talk about that. So you there with me then? Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start with verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come, not the realities themselves. Okay, so the law, the ceremonial law was shadows. The truth, the realities are in the new covenant. Okay, so you have the shadows, you have the realities. For this reason... It can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder, though it is those animal sac- Old Testament animal sacrifices, they were simply an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Church, God gave it to them, not because the blood of goats and animals and bulls had any power to cleanse sin. They were merely a picture looking ahead. They were shadows. The cross was the reality. Now, when I say cross tonight, understand the cross and the resurrection, they go hand in glove. You cannot separate them, all right? So, we know this, he says, because those animal sacrifices had to be done every single year. Hey, did you sin this year, church? How many of you sinned in 2022? Anybody? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, the truth is, yeah, we sin. So, did Jesus need to die on the cross again for us? No, no, he does not. The animal sacrifices, they had to be performed every single, actually many times a year. And Yom Kippur, the one for the whole nation, which probably was the sacrifice done for deliberate sins, because the other sacrifices were for non-deliberate sins. Yom Kippur, every year in which the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, once a year, only once a year, and a lamb was sacrificed and that blood was sprinkled and therefore cleansing the, uh, the people, the priest, like everything, everyone. And then the priest, he laid his hands on what they call a scapegoat. And that goat then, in this symbolic way, this picture, the sins of Israel were transferred to the goat and he was led off into the wilderness far away. That was once a year, but every year 
Hey, did you sin? Well, we're going to have to sacrifice another animal. Is that what we experience, though, in the new covenant? It says, verse 10, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times, church? Once for all. Once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 22, but, contrast here, but when this priest, referring to Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. That word perfect means complete. Complete or perfect forever those who are being made Holy. So it doesn't mean that they're suddenly made completely holy and they never sin again. They are made righteous in the eyes of God, sins washed away, righteousness of Christ imputed. Father looks upon them with his grace, forgiveness is granted, and now we have new life in Christ. But we are in the process of being made holy each day. One sacrifice. Jesus did not have to die more than one time. How many times did the animals have to die? Okay, over and over and over. Actually, animals die only once. I caught you on that. Anyway, the truth is they had to be sacrificed year after year after year or month after month. But Jesus, one time. They were the pictures. Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the reality. One time. The priests stand year after year offering the sacrifices. Where is Jesus in the new covenant? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't stand. You see that contrast? He doesn't stand. His, he said on the cross, it is finished. It's done. There's no, nothing more that needs to be done. Nothing that you can do that, that would somehow add to the efficacy of the cross, the power of the cross, nothing that you can do. Done. Now here's our problem. I'm going to pick on the Catholics and the Protestants right now. Are you familiar with last rites? Probably you're familiar with last rites, so you know what they do. The last rites make it easier or guaranteed that the one dying will go to heaven. Because within Catholicism, there is a teaching that if you commit a mortal sin, as opposed to a venial sin, see, venial sins, that they're fine. You don't need to go to confession for those. But mortal sins, you have to go to confession because if you don't, your soul is lost. Your soul is lost. And there is a fear within Catholicism. Now, I'm not saying that every priest teaches this. But there is a fear within Catholicism that if I commit a mortal sin, the grace of God, I am cut off, it says, from the grace of God. Last rites are like a last confessional. You, re you confess your sins, though for some reason, I hear a lot of confessing, at least maybe this is just the movies and what I've read, a lot of confessing, but I'm wondering, where's the repentance? Sorry, I diverge. So in these last rites, you now 
confess your sins, and now you spend less time in purgatory and you get a ticket to heaven guaranteed. Purgatory is where they try not to say that you suffer, but you do. And you are paying for a penalty. You're being purified. That's where purgatory, you're being purified. You're being purified through the fire. That's suffering. I need to ask, how strong is the cross? Can the cross cover all of your sins? Or is it just some of your sins, church? All of your sins. When Jesus died, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them were. So how many of your sins did Jesus die for? All of them. Not just for the ones that you committed in 2022. We're not sacrificing goats or sheep or lambs of any kind come January 1st. Okay, we're not doing that. Those blood sacrifices, in fact, they were simply annual reminders. You have sinned. And the ultimate forgiveness of their sins didn't come from the blood of the animals. It came from the cross that was ahead of them. All of our sins were antecedent to the cross. All of our sins then were paid for at the cross. Not just the venial sins, the, the, the mortal sins. Can I just define for you what a mortal sin is? And I know I'm picking on the Catholics right now. I'll get to us Protestants in just a moment. A mortal sin includes murder. And that's why they say if you commit suicide, well, there's no time to repent. There's no time to ask for forgiveness. Of course, you're going to hell. It's not what my Bible tells me. Because if the tree is good, it's going to produce good fruit. If it's bad, it's going to produce bad fruit. I'll, I'll leave that up to, you know, whether that sinner that committed suicide was truly a born-again believer or not. I'll leave that into God's hands. But I'm not going to say, well, you committed suicide, you murdered somebody, you died, and maybe in the process, you're going to hell. My Bible doesn't tell me that. But, see, mortal sins don't stop at murder. It includes, are you ready? Lying, covetousness, slandering, strife. Anger, discord, that is division. If these are not repented of before you die, you go to hell. Is anyone afraid right now? Because I have a cross to remind you of. Now, I did say I was going to start picking on the Protestants too. Can I ask you, when the, you sinned in 2022, to what degree did you wrestle with guilt. I'm not just talking about a, a grief that you're feeling, but this weight of guilt as if I am so unworthy of God's grace. I purposely worded it that way. Have you ever felt that way? Have you, and, and, and maybe you'd say, well, no, 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 because as good Christians, we know we're not supposed to say, yes, you know, I wrestle with guilt like all the time. I'm such a horrible, unworthy person. No, 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 I've heard Pastor Mike preach enough. I'm not supposed to feel that way. But guess what you did? 
the very next day you repented of the same sin. And the day after that you repented of the same sin. And the day after that you repented. And you kept repenting. How many times did you repent? How many times did you confess your sin and say, God, I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? Like a dozen, two dozen times? My friends, perhaps you're not getting the power or the efficacy of the cross. Because Jesus didn't just die for venial and mortal sins. He died for it all. And it says right here, in dying for it, he took care of all of the guilt. All of it. He took care of the shame and the guilt. So let me just word it this way. Our sins, by the cross, yes, they have been sufficiently paid for. The Son of God's blood spilled on my behalf. That is more than enough payment for my life. Remember, life for life. The, the, the life is in the blood of the animal, the human, okay? And so blood was spilled. Life for life. An animal's life can never cover my sins, can never be enough to substitute my life. But the Son of God, totally different story. He died for you. His blood in the past 2,000 years ago was spilled for you. And because of that, all of the sins are completely forgiven, washed away under the blood of Jesus Christ. And the NIV words it this way, so that he would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And yet, for some reason, we can wrestle with guilt and shame from our past. Even before we were Christians, we can wrestle with that. Peter, I believe, wrestled with shame. And Jesus had to break it off of him in the very last chapter of John. I'm not going to get into that story, but Jesus broke his shame. You know, when I was 20 years old, I've been a follower of Jesus for six years at that point. And God began to show me a bigger picture of who he was as this loving God who didn't look upon me with furled eyebrow and just, man, Mike, you really blew it again today, I see. Oh, just so disappointed. Mm. And that's how I felt God was. I mean, he loved me, don't get me wrong, he was just disappointed with me. And I wrestled with this. It acted as a barrier in my life. And at times like an oppression. But the Bible says that this type of oppression, the, all of the boots and all of the garments rolled in blood, all of the vestiges of your old man or your old woman, gone, destroyed by the cross. That is what it's promised here. But we can say, you know what? I just don't feel that that's true. And I get that. And there are times in which we need to meditate on truth so much over and over. Literally, church, sometimes hundreds of times before it clicks. And it's like the guilt, the shame, the oppression is lifted. But I tell you, when I was 20 years old... What a freedom that was for me. My walk with Christ just took on another skip in my step and, and a lightness in, in, as I ran with him. And, and I, I loved evangelism. I loved it even more then. 
my view of God changed. I began to grasp the power of the cross that it truly did away with all of my sins, all of them. Some people say, well, Mike, that's a, I'm not sure I would go that far. And this is part of the reasoning within Catholicism, because then that gives you a license to sin. You know, when you get married, well, can I just ask you this? Do you not believe that when you come to Christ in complete devotion, in surrender to him, and he offers you forgiveness for all of your sins, is it true that you want to go out the next day and kill somebody? Steal from someone. Do the worst crime that you can imagine. Of course not. Why? Because your heart has been changed. So the excuse that we don't want to play the card of the cross too strongly because it might give people the impression that it's okay to sin now. After all, whatever you do is going to be forgiven. See, that is the gospel turned upside down, and there's, there's a lack of understanding about now what happens to the believer's heart. It's changed. Can we sin? Yes, but the bondage of sin is broken. That's the key. It's not what, if it's simply based now on faith, and then I got to keep in good stride with God by doing enough good works, how many do you have to do? How many good works do you have to do to continue to allow God's favor to rest upon you. See, there, are, there is no number. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, what again, church? It is finished. The cross decimates Satan, sin, and self. But we can stand back And we can ask this question, then why are there still strongholds in my life? And can I just, when you understand this, and I'm going to give you an illustration, but when you understand this truth of the cross, it changes your perspective. It actually equips you for victory. I'm just going to use an illustration right now. Young lady goes to a party. Attractive lady. She goes to a party. It's a dress-up party. But she comes, and she comes in, with, I mean, style. After all, her jeans are, are cut, okay? All right, so, and, she, and she's got a T-shirt. And she goes to this party, and her friend pulls her aside, and she says, didn't you know that it was a dress-up? Yeah, but I just figured, why dress up? And they say, well, what do you mean? Why dress up? And she says this. I'm not a very attractive person. So what's putting on nice clothes going to do to cover that up? And the person looks at her and says, what do you mean? I just talked to 10 guys, and they would love to date you or court you or marry you if they could. You're such a beautiful person. Why? why? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm truly an ugly, I'm an ugly person. So why should I wear attractive clothes to a place like this? So because of this way this girl was viewing herself, 
her parents specifically, she kind of just gave up in some respects. Why do this? Why do that? And the truth is, church, because we don't understand what Christ has done for us, it's like, why try very hard? I'm just going to sin the next day. Why try? Why should I sacrifice so much? I just don't think it's worth it. But when you understand the love of the Father and how deep and profound it is for you, the love of the Father that sent his only Son, who willingly, he said, gave up his life. John 10, I willingly, he says, the good shepherd lays his life down willingly for the sheep. He, did, he wasn't coerced by the Father. His arm wasn't bent. Come on, Jesus, you got to die for humanity today. Come on. You know, Jesus went into this with a plan from all of eternity. I'm going to the cross. It's the only way. And that son of God stepped down out of glory for you? That his blood, his lifeblood spilled on the cross for you? Maybe you want some of us, we need to watch The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson and then understand this, that the physical suffering he performed for us cannot touch the spiritual inner suffering. He died only after six hours of hanging on a cross. Most thieves would, would survive at least 12 hours and sometimes days before they died. Six hours for Jesus. He was no weakling. Perhaps the suffering is just more than what we can understand. And in this illustration, because she believed that she was truly ugly or unattractive, there was this sense of giving up, but not completely. She at least wore her jeans. They were in style, come on, guys, and her cool-looking T-shirt, but she wasn't going to dress up. Why? What guy's going to notice me? When we go through life this way, it's kind of like when we have this stronghold and we just say, I just can't gain victory. When you understand the extent of the Father's love, when you understand that all of your sins was com were completely forgiven, washed away, guilt and shame gone, obliterated, the boots and the garments rolled in blood, burned, God rescued you out of sin. He didn't just rescue you and left you in your sin. He rescued you out of sin. To live and serve him. And when we stumble, the Bible tells me a righteous man falls seven times, but rises again. And there is this just this determination rooted in truth of what Christ has done for them. That they just keep going and they keep going and they keep going. Because they're running after the Father and they want to please him and they want to follow hard after him. They know that they have all of their sins forgiven. They know that they are loved and they want to just keep running after him. They don't give up. I tell you what, the worst way to play a game is to go into it believing that you're going to lose because you will. That, is, that principle is, is absolutely true in your Christian life. When you understand who you are in Christ, this inheritance that he gives you. It's amazing, church. Why do we want to keep looking back and viewing ourselves 
as that homeless, ugly person when Christ says no. No. You are beautiful. I've put on royal gar- I've put on you royal garments. Look what I have done for you. Why would the bride, after walking down the altar married, act like a pig and go outside and start rolling in the mud? If your garments are white, man, you, I want to follow after Jesus. Everyday church, your garments are white. Your garments are clean. They're bright. They're beautiful. Jesus died once for sin and then sat down at the right hand of the Father because we had been made complete in Christ. The vestiges of your warfare from fight, you were the God's enemy. You were the Midianites. He's referring to Gideon in the 300. You were one of those Midianites that God defeated. Mike Curtis was an enemy of God, and he defeated Mike Curtis so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is our hope, church. This is the power of the cross. When you wake up tomorrow morning in full knowledge of some of these struggles of sin that you have, I want you to reflect upon the message today. I want you to go back to Isaiah chapter, and I want you to go back to Hebrews chapter 10, maybe some other passages of Scripture, and I want you to just drink that truth in that it would equip you for that day of who you are now in Christ, a beautiful, blood-bought son or daughter of God, made complete in Christ. This is who we are. Armed with that truth, then, I truly believe that now equips us to be able to walk in victory. As we lean on him, shame, guilt gone, every day rising, I am running hard after God today. I'm not slacking in this race. Church, can you stand with me? Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about this son that's been born unto us. Because this church is the very reason why he was born. To conquer Satan, sin, and self. Father, I just I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for its truth. I thank you, Father, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us once for all. I thank you that our salvation is secure in your hands. I thank you, Father, that you are so good. You empower us every day to rise above these addictions, to rise above the guilt and the shame, the depression that these things can cause. And I just ask you, Father, as we reflect on that truth, tomorrow morning when we reflect on this truth, I just ask you, Father, crush the head of the enemy. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil, destroy his works today, destroy his works tomorrow and throughout our life by the power of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.